welcome to the SAMOP Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service and various specialties. Today, we're fortunate to have Dr. Husey with us. Dr. Husey is a psychiatrist who completed his residency in DC as part of the National Capital Consortium. Currently, he has his own practice and is an osteopathic manipulative medicine preceptor at Rocky Vista University. How are you doing today, Dr. Husey? Great, great to have this interview. Thanks for inviting me. Today we're going to do an OMM specialty podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your training in OMM? I did what's called a plus one residency, which under ACGME is now an NMM2 residency. It basically is after you've completed a primary residency, so in my case, I did family practice and psychiatry within the military. A plus one or this NMM2 residency allows you then to do the prerequisite requirements to be board eligible for NMM, which is called neuromuscular medicine and osteopathic manipulative medicine, NMM, OMM, within hopefully the constraints of one year to complete those requirements. I completed that at the University of New England in Biddeford, Maine and did that actually after I left my time in the military following nine years of service in the Air Force because the residency is not an option within the military and is not an option to be deferred, go train, and return with that specialty. Did you feel that you were able to utilize your osteopathic treatment within the military? I was pleasantly surprised coming into my military residency in 2000 in DC. This is again, was the family practice psychiatry program that was combined. And I was pleasantly surprised to see how many DOs were in the residency and how much interest there was from the MD colleagues to learn some osteopathic manipulation. Beyond that, the patients really appreciated having a DO physician taking care of them, who could use OMT amongst all the other treatments available as well. And so some of the populations of patients that were particularly interested in this are the high profile and high security level active duty members, so pilots in the Air Force, security forces, or in the Army, the military police. People who have high-level security clearance and things like medications or certain conditions can ground them and limit them and maybe even exclude them from continuing in that career path. So when you have a pilot with headaches or back pain that they are limited in what medications they can treat, very often flight medicine would send me those patients in the family practice clinic and I would provide OMT treatment there and it had great success. Where I saw this most clearly was after residency when I was stationed in Japan at Yokota Air Base. And I worked maybe three, four months as the base psychiatrist exclusively. And then I approached the hospital commander with data. And I collected the numbers of patients seen in my clinic for psychiatry and compared that to the two prior psychiatrists stationed there before me. And I was able to show that I was seeing more patients in three days than the two psychiatrists before me saw in five. And so I asked the hospital commander, I said, don't worry, sir, 
I'm not interested in working less. But what I'd like to do is a DO who loves OMT, I would like to open an OMT clinic in the hospital system here on base. And the hospital commander at the time was actually a line officer who was a JAG. He was trained as a lawyer, but had never practiced law. And somehow he got into the medical service corps for the Air Force and was a hospital commander. Pleasant guy, but very serious. And he said, well, Chad, I don't know how that's going to be, a psychiatrist manipulating people. And I said, sir, I'm a psychiatrist. That's all I do is manipulate people. <laughs> and he barely cracked a grin. And he said, all right, let's give it a shot. And so I maintained for three and a half of my four years there a packed OMT clinic once a week. And within about two months, I had a three-month waiting list. The same thing I had seen in residency about people not only wanting treatment, maybe because they couldn't get other treatments, but for many people, as I found in this clinic, who were getting prescription medications, who had had surgical interventions, maybe nerve blocks, who weren't seeing improvement for their conditions adequately, would come to me for manipulation and maybe get additional improvement. And in some cases, it would resolve issues for them as well. What led you to pursue NMM and OMM? Wow. So that goes back to med school. I went to Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine before it became A.T. Still University. And while there, I had an appreciation for the what's commonly quoted, the holistic approach for osteopathic medicine. And it wasn't, though, until I got to Kirksville as a first-year student and got to start learning OMT that I fell in love with it. And I said, wow, I really like this. I don't want to give it up, but I, I want to be a psychiatrist. And so being an HPSP scholarship student, I knew what program availability I had. And that's one of the reasons I picked the family practice psychiatry program. The primary motivator for that was the plus one residencies for osteopathic manipulation or NMM OMM existed even then in 1996. But at the time, it was only eligible for people who had completed a primary care residency. So pediatrics, internal medicine, maybe OB-GYN. And so that coupled with my interest to continue OMM actively before I could be eligible for a plus one residency, that led me to pick the combined family practice psychiatry residency. And having gone to school in Kirksville and appreciating from the Osteopathic Museum, as well as the Still Hildreth facility still physically standing in Macon, Missouri, about 30 miles south, I really felt a draw to practice osteopathic psychiatry, which would include OMT. And so in my mind, to be competent, as well as to be able to speak from a, some level of authority nationally on the topic of OMM and mental health, I felt I had to be residency trained and board certified in both psychiatry and NMM, OMM. And I made that plan as early as my first year of med school. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately took me 10 years later to actually culminate that following the one year residency for NMM and sitting for my NMM boards in 2010. Earlier, you mentioned that pilots and other service members were referred to you. What are some examples of conditions you would help them with? Primarily musculoskeletal, I would get back pain, neck pain, headaches is the most common. 
But I had many patients that would also come for radiculopathies, neuropathies, and a handful of cases for GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, or maybe irritable bowel syndrome. And I would begin working on visceral manipulation to try to help augment the treatment approach they were already getting. Okay. How have you been able to utilize OMT as a psychiatrist? Like what techniques do you use and what differences have you found? So now we're touching on what has really been my primary area of interest for my entire career. What I often describe as the interface between mental health and manual medicine. I began first by reviewing what was available in our history as osteopathic physicians regarding psychiatry, all the way back to the Still Hilder Sanatorium and its beginnings in uh, 1915 and 17, as well as the handful of articles that had been produced in the JAOA regarding treatment of patients in those facilities, whether it was schizophrenia, as well as some of the studies done in the early 1960s by physician married couple, The Woods, W-O-O-D-S, he and she, they both worked at Still Hildreth and some of the early cranial research regarding cranial manipulation and pathology were in the psychiatric patients at Still Hildreth. So once I looked at our history and the data that we had, I then kind of went back to the ideas of AT Still, that we need to focus on our anatomy and physiology understanding so that then we know where health is and we know what possibly we can do to restore it in a disease state. I began a long process of not too dissimilar to Sutherland, of basically self-exploring on myself and my family and, and early patients with trying to palpate different things beyond the skull. Now, certainly in cranial manipulation, if you've taken an osteopathic cranial course, you have been taught about the dura and the skull bones and the CSF. And what is strikingly absent from any basic cranial course, and unfortunately most advanced cranial courses, is any discussion about the elephant in the room, which is the brain inside the skull. I didn't have any mentors. The cranial field really wasn't looking into that in any concrete, articulated way. And so I had to kind of develop something myself. And what I've spent time developing and now teach courses in, and I certainly lecture on nationally about the topic, is what I like to call osteopathy in the brain. This is an application of anatomy and an understanding of osteopathic manipulation, basically the idea of layer-by-layer layer palpation, and being able to palpate from the skin to, say, the skull to the dura, which is contiguous with the pia and arachnoid, which gets you onto the surface of the brain, and then starting to identify, because it really hadn't been described, what does the brain even feel like when you palpate to that level? We know what it's like in a living person, say, undergoing brain surgery. We know what it's like in a cadaveric state. We know what happens when someone dies and the brain isn't preserved. It turns to liquid. But we had no description in osteopathic medicine about the brain palpation-wise specifically. So just started to explore that. And over time, I said, well, great, now I've gotten down to the brain, what brain sections am I even going to look for, and what does dysfunction even feel like? 
My second kind of research that I looked into was compiling all the studies on neuroanatomic and neurophysiologic studies for psychiatric conditions. I began first looking at mood disorders with the two quintessential conditions of major depressive disorder and bipolar as kind of the example illustrative conditions to start with. And conveniently, they had the most data. So certain brain regions are associated with depression. For example, decreased total frontal lobe volume, decreased activity of the dorsomedial and dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, similar for the anterior cingulate gyrus. And there's also some interesting increased cerebral blood flow for the medial thalamic nuclei. And then what I started doing was using that layer-by-layer palpation of a clear anatomic chain to get to the brain. I then found my way to these specific areas. And then I had to ask myself, okay, what does healthy brain feel like? What does dysfunctional brain feel like? You know, what does volume loss feel like versus decreased activity or increased blood flow for that matter? And I didn't just look at it in that kind of allopathic mindset of, oh, there's a difference. There's lower activity or there's increased activity because that's a very simplistic way, hence allopathic. If the blood flow is increased, the allopathic response would say that that blood flow should be lowered. If there's decreased activity in a brain region, the allopathic response would say we need to increase that activity. And that may or may not be true because what's being ignored there is the osteopathic understanding that the body has innate healing wisdom. It is designed to have self-healing and self-regulating systems in it. So for example, one of the reasons that the brain regions will have less cerebral blood flow is because it's being used less. Hence the dementia precursor, if you don't use it, you lose it. I had to ask myself, well, once I'm here, I'm not even sure if increasing or decreasing is the appropriate response. I discovered that we have definitions of health in the rest of the body, but we really had in the osteopathic profession no description of what health in the brain was. I developed a single term that is probably the only new term I use in my course, and it's the idea of transparency. So I came to this after repeatedly palpating sections of the brain and realizing that healthy brain was kind of like the transparency image of like a hologram, where you can kind of see through it and see what's behind it, but you can still appreciate the entity that the hologram is representing. Palpatory-wise, we talk about having a vision in our mind's eye as we're palpating of what we're feeling. Well, that's kind of how I describe the mind's eye perspective. But from a physical palpatory sense, I describe that area of health as having no significant friction or drag when you palpate through it. So just like you might have in a muscle when there's no significant tension in that muscle or spasm, you can basically run the length of that muscle with a certain level of resistance. But imagine then with hypertonic muscles or maybe an acute spasm in a portion, you're going to run through and hit much more significant resistance. Or maybe like our classic red reflex test that we do to look for hypersympathetic tone. Once I defined what health was, and I was led to look for health first because of what A.T. Still said, any person can find disease. We need to first seek health. And so what did that mean to first seek health? I didn't even know what health meant in the brain. And hence, I had to discover that and kind of describe it as transparency.
And then the dysfunctional aspects of the brain palpatory-wise, I try to stick to the idea of TART, which is how we define all somatic dysfunction. And that idea was that there would be tissue texture changes. Maybe it's volume changes. Maybe it's increased. Maybe it's decreased. Maybe there's activity level differences, increases in activity, decreases in activity. There might also be some connectivity issues, which is maybe activation, maybe it's blood flow, who knows. Those are kind of the three general areas that I would characterize for the brain regions that were identified in those kind of pathophysiologic studies. And I've developed and expanded that now through not only mood disorders and anxiety disorders, but ADHD as well. My next step will be looking at trauma disorders, so probably TBI and PTSD certainly, and looking at brain regions that have been associated and expanding those. I've already kind of done that clinically in my practice, but as far as developing additional courses. Are you able to determine based on palpating a patient's brain what conditions they may have? That's a great question. So are they diagnostic? No. In fact, let's say with depression. There's those four areas that I mentioned that are kind of associated with depression. That's the key, is that our level of neuroanatomic and physiologic study data are functional indicators of an association, not cause and effect. And that's really true for all of mental health. Other than maybe a stroke or like a, a foreign body that gets lodged in a part of the brain that actually leads to a deficit, we really don't have that level of cause and effect data in psychiatry. I think that's probably why I have the observation I do. So if I have a patient with major depressive disorder that comes in for an initial evaluation, as part of my psychiatric interview and exam, I include a head-to-toe physical exam, doing everything from HENT, heart and lungs, abdominal, musculoskeletal, neuro exam, and an osteopathic structural exam. And I would say very rarely do I have more than two of the four that are found in that depressed patient. Similar for bipolar, there's five regions typically associated with bipolar. I might have one or two. Very rarely have I seen more than that. And I don't think I've had any patient who has had all four or five respectively. And I think that's probably, again, because of the level of association data rather than true cause and effect. And that characterized by the fact that in psychiatry, our diagnostic gold standard is still clinical interview based on criteria. Can you discuss how you're able to utilize that knowledge to then treat a patient? Excellent question. I probably should have a story for you that says, oh, I had a patient with bipolar or depression or anxiety who came in. And I did this brain work, and they were completely asymptomatic and never needed a medication again. I don't have a story like that. And so then I have to ask myself, maybe it's because I suck. Maybe it's because I'm not that good. Maybe it's because psychiatric illness is a true body-mind-soul condition. It's multifaceted. And it's multifaceted. And therefore, just because I address the structural issue may or may not resolve the neurochemical issue the environmental issue, and so forth. I certainly would say the common thing I see for my patients is nothing stops me from treating headaches or back pain or visceral dysfunction on a patient who also is coming to me for psychiatric issue. And in that, I'm treating the whole better. 
I'm supporting health of the whole better. So in general, for my patients, the response is, as I tell them in the beginning of our first interview, is it's not so much if you're going to get better. The question is just how much. And that how much is dependent largely on you as the patient, because you've got lifestyle factors, whether it's nutrition, diet, fitness, lifestyle choices like smoking or relationship choices, uh, occupational choices that are contributing to detracting whatever regarding the health. Those factors are fully within your control, and we're going to discuss that and recommend that, and, a, and it's something I'm going to support you in like a cheerleader, but I can't do the work there. Regarding manipulation and maybe the other treatments that might be part of that, I have a larger role. And in that case, I see patients generally in psychiatry need less medication. In fact, I don't know if that's just a byproduct of people being inappropriately diagnosed before they come see me or what, but I spend a lot of time taking people off medications. People who have maybe been on them for a full time for decades because of a supposed diagnosis of bipolar. And I go through a very thorough history with them and they've never met for a manic episode. And I cautiously and appropriately wean them off. And we realize they didn't really have bipolar. And now they're 10 years down the road having been on Abilify for bipolar. The other category is I do have some patients where there's more drastic improvement. But again, none that I would say that they are suddenly not meeting criteria for a primary mental illness and no longer any psychotropic. But coming down on medications, removing medications, decreasing the dose, the number, that's kind of the general thing I see. And to me, that's a big success because polypharmacy is a big issue and certainly American medicine. Do patients typically need treatment multiple times to maintain any changes that they've made or improvements? That's a good question. There, there certainly is some controversy between other manual medicine providers and osteopathic physicians. The idea from AT still would be that you find it, fix it, and leave it alone. Ongoing need for treatment is an indicator that you're probably not treating the cause. Like my psychiatric practice in general, once I get someone stable and they're doing better, I tend to refer them back to their primary care and I could think over the life of our clinic, a handful of people who continue to see me for treatment. And in those cases, the manipulation has optimized what is available. And I'm basically doing any new issues that crop up. Maybe I assess those areas of the brain. If there's something new that crops up, I treat it. Or maybe it's someone who's got chronic back pain that... I'm not their primary care for, but I can continue to provide some level of improvement, but it's short of resolution. I have one patient or a couple patients, actually, who have primary, very challenging visceral conditions, interstitial cystitis or a chronic bowel condition like irritable bowel, but not quite, not quite like inflammatory bowel. And so these, these patients are chronically plagued by these conditions. They're on medications. They have lots of interventional procedures done. And I am one of the tools in osteopathic manipulation that helps them function at a better level than without it. 
Certainly there are those people who come in with back pain or some other issue that one treatment, two treatments, and they're good to go. I've had those as well, but I think the likelihood of those goes down over time because at least in your catchment area, there's only so many people. <laughs> Do you have any research or publications that our listeners could reference to learn more about the work that you're doing? So I would reference a website that I post all of my national level presentations on, including the lecture I give for Rocky Vista second year students on the interface of mental health and manual medicine. And that website is osteopathicpsychiatry.com. It's just an open website. You can see PDFs of all the presentations there. Regarding ongoing other things, an organizational movement that I started regarding osteopathic manipulative education, along with a colleague, is a website called osteopathyunderground.com. This is more of a course-based educational curriculum for those interested, and my brain courses are offered through that directly. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. That wraps up our episode with Dr. Huzi today. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, Feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com and thanks for tuning in.